Philippians chapter 2, will. Please say a word of prayer for me, if you will. I'm especially burdened this afternoon. Philippians chapter 2, we will begin reading the text in verse number 6. The Bible says, Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. I had shared with the men here a few weeks ago an account that took place in my home one day when my wife was schooling the children, she began to expound to them a blessed old story from the Gospel of Ruth. And as she spoke to those little ears and hearts, and began to proclaim Christ and His work on this earth. My oldest, who is but four, perked up and asked a question. And this question has been my meditation. For some days past now, as I could not escape it, and more importantly, its answer. The question my son asked, which is my title today, was this. But mama, why did he have to die? Why did he have to die? As this account was relayed to me, my eyes began to swell. And my heart burst at the consideration. What a wondrous question. Indeed, what a glorious answer could be given. And by God's grace, I would seek to make an attempt of that today. I do not seek to impress you with some great theological answer, nor do I seek an extensive exposition of the text and its context. I would encourage you to do a word study of this passage in your own time, as it has proved to be a great blessing to my heart. However, it is my desire and great burden to bring just a simple gospel word before you that Christ may be exalted. May the God of grace be pleased to impress it upon your hearts and get to Himself great glory. But lest I should be accused of begging the question, I must acknowledge that it would be a faulty Attempts to try and answer this question 
while assuming the point that Christ, in fact, had to die. Therefore, the question that must be answered first is this. Did he have to die? Did he have to die? There are two observations I will make from the text which will aid in answering this initial question in two considerations. First, the consideration of the phrase, He humbled Himself. Verse 6, Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made Himself of no reputation, and took upon Him the form of a servant that was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, He humbled Himself. Exactly who is this man? And from whence did he humble himself? According to the text, he is equal to God, being in the form of God. The word form is translated from the Greek word morphe, and it carries the philosophical sense of the word, not merely the shape, but rather the nature, the character, and being of God. Simply put, He is God. And yet He emptied Himself and took the form of a servant. He humbled or humiliated Himself. Again, the word there means to depress, to be cast down to a low degree. But this man was not forced to be cast down but he cast himself down from the state of heavenly equality. Surely under this consideration, one might be persuaded to answer the question of the necessity of Christ's death in the negative. After all, he was God. No one could make him or force him to die. Under this consideration alone, I could be persuaded to agree with the conclusion of a negative answer. However, I must make another observation. From our text. Second, the consideration of the phrase obedient unto death. Lest there be any confusion, I would point out the sense of the wording. This does not carry the connotation that Christ was obedient to death, but rather that he was obedient until or even to the point of death. Under this consideration, then, the question must be asked to whom? Was he obedient? None other I say than the Father from eternity past. Lest I should be accused of pulling this answer out of thin air, let me provide you with several scriptural texts. Psalm 110 and verse 4, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 1 Peter 1 verse 19 and 20, But with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb, without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times to you. Revelation 13 and verse 8, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship Him, whose names were not written in the book of the life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Acts 2 and verse 22 and 23, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, 
ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. The word here, obedience in the text, carries the meaning to be attentively listened, to be submissive. Well, glory, as the old kept meeting preachers would say, this Christ was attentively listening to His Father in complete submission for the time long before ordained in which He would lay down His life and death. He was obedient, as Mr. Gill says, from the cradle to the cross. And this obedience was never in question. This terrific, astounding, awesome, gruesome, glorious death was more than certain in the eternal mind of God. From before the foundation of the world, this death was settled in heaven. God is eternal. No beginning and no end. And His eternal decree has always been with Him and has nor ever will fail. One may say that He is God and this death could not be forced. I say truth. But yea, also that God decreed from eternity past that Christ must die. And as Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the Son of man that he should repent. Hath he said and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken and shall he not make it good? Did Christ have to die? I answer based on the authority of Scripture with a resounding yes. Not that he was forced to die, but that he had to die because it was his own eternal plan. The words of Mr. Winslow are here fitting. So completely was Jesus bent upon saving sinners by the sacrifice of Himself that He created the tree upon which He was to die and nurtured from infancy the men who were to nail Him to the accursed wood. Christ must die. That brings me then to the main question I seek to answer. If He indeed had to die, why? Why did Christ have to die? I will attempt to answer this in three considerations. First, He had to die for the exaltation of the saint. First, under this heading, I would observe the exaltation of His humanity. This was not merely a humbling from and exalting of His Divinity, for He was long before exalted in glory with the Father. But look at verse 8 again. And being found in the fashion, in fashion as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted. As He humbled Himself, God also exalted Him. He is exalted in His humanity with His divinity and sits at the right hand of God. 1 Peter 3.22 Who, Jesus Christ, is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto Him. Second, under this heading of the exaltation of the Savior, I observe that He was exalted as Lord. Look with me at verse 9. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted Him and given Him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth. 
and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The sense of the text in verses 10 through 11 is not at the mere mention of Christ's name, knees will bow and tongues will confess, but rather at the authority of this Christ, the authority that lies in His name based upon His exaltation as Lord. At that authority, knees will bow before Him and tongues will pay homage to this Lord. Again, I appeal to the Scriptures. John 17, verse 1 and 2, These words spake Jesus and lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify Thy Son, that Thy Son may also glorify Thee. As Thou hast given Him power over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as Thou hast given Him. And again in the prophetic psalm, Psalm 8, Verse 5 and 6, For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. And finally, I've read it once already. Even those who are not his people shall worship under his authority. Revelation 13, 8, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of the life of the Lamb. He was exalted as Lord. Third, under this heading, I observe Him exalted as a mediator. The well-known Scripture, 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And then in Hebrews, the necessity of this exaltation is shown. In Hebrews 8, verse 1 through 6. Now the things which we have spoken is the sum. This is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of majesty in heavens, a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore it is of necessity that this man this man hath somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. And finally, in Acts 5 and verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged upon a tree. Him hath God exalted with His right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. I have presented then from the text presently considered a myriad and a myriad of others to boot, that Christ had to die for His own exaltation as the God-man, the Lord of all, and the one and only mediator between God and sinners. In a word, He had to die to be exalted as the Savior. This consideration of the exaltation of the Savior cannot be separated from my next consideration for the necessity of Christ's death. Secondly, He had to die for the glory of the Father. 
According to the text, God has given Christ the name above every name. In verse 9. God has also given Him dominion and authority. Verses 10 and 11. But consider also Acts 2 and verse 36. Therefore let all of the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. But why, you ask? To the glory of the Father. Verse 11 again. That every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One might then ask, but how does Christ's death and exaltation glorify the Father? Consider first that their glory is inseparable. John 1 and verse 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John could not even mention the beholding of the glory of the Son without recognizing that His glory was inseparably connected to the Father. Consider second that Christ glorified the Father in His obedience unto death. In John 17 verse 4 and 5, I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world began. As Mr. Blessed McLaren puts it, we glorify the Father when we glorify the Son. Their honor is inseparable and their glory is one. Christ's exaltation after His death glorified the Father. The two can never be mutually exclusive. You cannot exalt Christ without glorifying the Father. And to this end He did come. As was heard from John 17 and verse 1, The hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son may also glorify thee. I come third, come to the third and final consideration to answer the question, why did he have to die? The first two considerations are inseparable, as I have observed, and they both come together in the third and final. They set the context for this consideration. And without the understanding they bring, this consideration would be and has been grossly misinterpreted. Third, Christ had to die for the salvation of sinners. What a glorious consideration is this. Christ did come for sinners. He did come to save His people. God is glorified through the salvation of sinners. And it was to this end that He came to save. It was to this end that His eternal decree stood. To this end that He created the world. To this end that He preserved wicked man through generations of time. That He might be glorified in their redemption. Oh, this context will set sinners' hearts aright. If they had any inclination toward Christ at all. He saw nothing in you to force Him to come and die. There was no amount of pity that could sway the hand of God in your favor, dear friend. He came. He had to die for the salvation of sinners, no doubt. But He did it 
for the exaltation and glory of His own name first and foremost. And if He has called you to partake in this specific glory through salvation, it is fully of grace. Look to the text for this heading, the salvation of sinners. There are two considerations of verses 10 and 11. First, there is the consideration of the forced submission of rebellious hearts. I have frequently heard this text used to support this consideration, and there is no doubt that element to it. I have already shown in Revelation 13 and verse 8 that He will have all those who are not His own worshiping Him under His authority. I will not linger there again. However, the context here must not be missed. This is an epistle to believers. And these verses are tied directly to those who partake in the salvation that is mentioned in verse 12. So I observe, second, the free submission of willing hearts by grace. This is the primary context of the verse. The sweet submission and confession that comes from a heart that has been wooed by grace. You know the text, Psalm 110 and verse 3, Thy people shall be willing the day of thy This was Christ's purpose, to glorify the Father by the salvation of sinners. That He should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given Him. And this is life eternal, that they may know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. I have glorified Thee on earth. I have finished the work which Thou gavest me to do. John 17. I gave you first the twofold consideration of the text. Second, under this heading, I present to you Christ, the only atonement for sin. Romans 5 and verse 6 for when we were yet without strength. In due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. First Timothy 1 and verse 15, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Hebrews 10 and verse 9, Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering sometimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered once, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down in the right hand of God. First Peter three and verse eighteen: For Christ also hath suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. On and on I could go. But while I have labored intensely to set the right context for the salvation of sinners, I would not be guilty of downplaying the glorious hope that lies in Christ. Dear unbeliever, 
while He came primarily for His own glory through the salvation of sinners, do not miss this. He came for the salvation of sinners indeed. You have a hope in Christ that He saves sinners. All of these scriptures I have just read point to this glorious truth. Christ came for sinners. He had to die for their salvation. And He alone can atone for their sins. Finally then, I will give you two brief points of application under this heading. What do you make of His death? I have tried to provide a modest but scriptural answer to the matter of the necessity of Christ's death. But I now ask you, what do you make of His death? What do you make of His death? Allow me to clarify that question. Not, how do you feel about what you have heard? But rather, what do you make of His death in your practical life? Consider the phrase in verse 12. He said, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Allow me to expound under two points. First, how we consider what the verse is not saying. The text here is not advocating for salvation by works. Hear me and hear me well. There is no amount of works that can earn salvation. And I know that sounds easy enough to agree to mentally, but I asked you, what do you make of His death practically? Oh dear young person, do you not have the ability, you do not have the ability to line up all the pieces and produce some key to eternal life. You do not have enough knowledge even though you may, make, you may make sense of these things in your mind, to apply grace to your heart. What doth hinder you to forsake all and run to Christ? Are you resting in the faith of your parents? Do you want to taste of the world first? Do you think you can manage on your own and find a way back to God? Oh, foolish heart, you would make the death of Christ of none effect. You think this text gives you permission to work out your salvation in private while you deny publicly this Christ? Repent at once, I say, and run to Christ. Oh, dear friend who has grown a little older, perhaps a little wiser in their own eyes, what do you make of Christ's death in your life? Are you trusting in a religion that is not prescribed in this book? Has your religion caused you to grow in grace and knowledge of Christ Jesus? Or have you remained yet in the city of destruction for many years, deaf to the cries of warning about you? What? Examine your heart by this word and tell me if you spit in the face of Christ with a false religion. If this be the case, repent at once, I say again, and sue Christ for mercy. To whoever it may be applied, hear these warnings. This text has no place for unbelievers. You cannot do the works of God while you deny His Christ. Christ alone can save 
Repent of your works and run to Him. I remind you of the words of Christ, the words of Christ to those who came to Him, albeit with the wrong motive. In John 6 and verse 28, Then they said unto Him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on Him whom He hath sent. Run to Christ. Finally, I will briefly consider what the verse is saying. The phrase to work out here means to labor intensely until completion. In other words, Paul is saying, labor intensely in your own salvation until its completion. You see, this is a command for believers. For those called out by grace. Here is a word against the heresy of easy believism. Paul says to be busy laboring in the matters of salvation and examination. Be on guard always. Be busy in the things of God. Examine your hearts for the fruits of salvation and obedience to His Word. And is this your fear, dear friend? Do you doubt your ability in this work? Do you struggle to take one step at all because you fear the steps that follow? Well, take heart. As Paul informs his hearers, it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Oh, but ask yourself this. Has God called you to Christ? Then why do you linger? Why do you linger? Is He calling you now? Then what doth hinder you from coming? Have you believed upon the name which is above every name? Well, then you must be busy about laboring in your salvation. Anything else is utter disobedience. Be busy about the ordinances God has ordained for believers and the building of His kingdom. Christ had to die. But what do you make of His death?